Well, good morning. My name's Steven. I'm one of the pastors here. I love the video that we just watched for a couple of reasons. And one of the reasons is this, because I think it's good to have spaces where we can ask questions. I think so many people that are in the church have questions and they feel like kind of ashamed, like it shows that they're childish or something uh, if they start asking questions. But I think it's really good and healthy for us to ask questions about what we believe as followers of Jesus. You know, I feel really blessed because in my life, I grew up in the church. And that was a really good thing. I grew up in, in a church that, that where I was loved and where I saw people loving Jesus, and it was a really good thing. But that doesn't mean that I didn't have struggles and questions. And in many ways, I can relate to the people that we just saw uh, having that conversation with a pastor. Because I went through my own period of asking questions. It's really popular to call it deconstruction now, but back in the day, I just called it my journey. You see, I grew up in a church that believed in all the things of the Holy Spirit, which was really good. We believed that the Holy Spirit spoke, and I, I heard and saw people give uh, prophetic words to people who they had never met. Prophetic words that, like, blew your mind because they were so dead on. They told you so much about who that person was, and this person had no idea. It was purely from Jesus. I, I saw people get healed time and time again. Really good things. But... As I got older, I also realized that I was seeing some stuff that I considered to be fake. And of course, you know what happens in your heart and in your mind when you see fake stuff? It starts to win out, right? It starts to become the thing that's dominant in your thinking about what it is that you're seeing. You know, there's a story about a boy whose dad was a pastor and he saw his dad writing a sermon. And he said, Dad, uh, how do you know what to say? And his dad went, well, God tells me what to say. The, paper, the son looked at his paper and he was like, well, how come you have to cross out so much stuff then? There's a lot of questions that we don't always get it right the first time, right? We have to learn. So I stripped away all of, uh, all of my beliefs down to the bare bones. And when I looked at it at the bare bones, the one thing that I knew for certain that I believed was in Jesus and the cross. There was no question in my mind that Jesus was real, both historically and personally to me. Fast forward 10 years later when I'm getting ready to finish seminary and um, I'm looking at going and kind of becoming a professional Christian uh, who speaks about Jesus all the time. And I was a little nervous about it, which is good. Uh, I think it was good that I was nervous and I was praying about it. I was like, okay, God, what do I ground myself in when stuff gets crazy, when stuff gets hard, when I don't understand everything that's going on? And I felt like the Holy Spirit pointed me to 1 Corinthians 2.2, which says this, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Break it all down and what's left? The cross and Jesus. But sometimes we forget that Jesus and the cross are stumbling blocks. For people. And that was true historically when Jesus was alive. This was not a, a commonly thought of way that uh, a God or a Savior should die, should live his life. Jesus was a stumbling block in many ways. For the, the Jewish leaders, he was a stumbling block because uh, he, he took away the religious power. They were afraid of losing their authority over the Israelites. For the Roman leaders, he was a stumbling block because they were afraid of losing power 
to him because he didn't say the things that he wanted. they wanted him to say. For Judas, his friend who betrayed him, Jesus was a stumbling block because he didn't give him the control and the power that Judas wanted in his kingdom. And it's so on it went. And there's this song by a group of worship leaders named Common Hymnal that's called The Cross Made the Change. Listen to these lyrics. When they saw Jesus, they saw a teenage mother. They saw an unbelieving brother, just a man of poverty. But when I see Jesus, I see a sovereign and a savior. I see the healer of the nations. I see the stone rolled away. But when they saw Jesus, they saw a rebel and a problem. They did everything to stop him, even put him on a tree. But when I see Jesus, I see a sovereign and a savior. I see the healer of the nations. I see the glory from Galilee. But it's the cross that made the change. And I'll let everybody know that it's the cross that made the change. When people looked at Jesus, they saw Mary, his his, uh, teenage unwed mother. When people looked at Jesus, they saw Joseph, his adopted father, who was not a wealthy man, was not a powerful man, was not even necessarily a, a wise or intelligent man. He was just a normal guy. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a rebel who constantly bucked against the religious establishment of his day. When they looked at Jesus, they saw a man who would not go along with the status quo who who they needed to stop before he did too much before he said too much but friends what do you see when you see jesus do you see the cross as a stumbling block or a place of hope do you see it as a place of healing Do you see freedom from the things that have tried to hold on to you to control you to hold you down do you see a king that is actually worth following. The cross changed everything. And for me, I've resolved to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified, because that's where it's at. And this morning, friends, that is the basis for where we're jumping off of. This morning, we are continuing our series in 1 Corinthians called Our Mess, His Message. We're going to be in chapters 2 and 3, so if you have a Bible, open up to that. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about growth. I've called it messy growth. And we're going to ask this simple question is, what does it look like to be spiritually mature? And we're going to dig into it. But, you know, people have a lot of ideas about the answer to this question. But I think the answer is found in what I just said. And so I want us to keep that foremost in our minds. That we resolve to know nothing except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. Will you pray with me? Jesus, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for this stumbling block that made a way for us to be connected to you. For this thing that seems so outlandish, so ridiculous, so unnecessary for God to do, but that you knew that it was necessary for us to be able to know you. And I pray that this morning that we will know you even more. I pray that you'll speak to us more deeply this morning. I pray that we will grow, even if it's a little messy to be more like you, to look like you. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 2.7, let's read this. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 
these are the things that God revealed to us by his spirit. So he says it's a mystery that has been hidden. Now, this sounds like the beginning to a Dan Brown book, right? It sounds like some serious Da Vinci Code stuff that we got going on here. So what's the deal with mystery, with this secret wisdom that Paul is talking about? You know, throughout the history of the church, people have tried to figure this out. Uh, some have done a better job than others, if we're being honest. And some people have taken this and gotten really far off base. One group that, that's taken this and kind of been a little obsessed with it, if I can be honest with you, are called Gnostics. Gnosticism still shows up in our church today, and you'll see, notice that when I, when I say what they believe. But the Gnostics were originally Christians, but they got off track because they were so focused on being saved through the discovery and fostering of secret inner knowledge instead of the cross. Their goal was to awake a divine spark within inside themselves and to gain sacred knowledge to be free from this world after death. Now, some of that may sound familiar because, like I said, this is still a part of religion today. There are religions that are completely based around this sort of idea. And in some parts of the church, unfortunately, this is still preached as something uh, that you could achieve, something that you could work towards. Gnostics still think that the message and the wisdom of Jesus is still hidden from most of us. But in the Bible, what we're told is that the mystery that's being referenced here is a mystery in the past. It's a, a reference to God's plan that was hidden, but that now is revealed. It's no longer hidden. It's no longer a mystery. Now it's just foolishness, so to speak. Catch that last part. It's revealed, which means that Jesus has shown us what he's up to and what his secret wisdom is, what his mystery was, what his plan is. So another way to look at these verses is to say this, God's wisdom is hidden in mystery, which God planned from the beginning, which humanity and its so-called wise people and leaders misunderstood. So what is God's wisdom? What is this mysterious plan? What's the cross? which no one understood, which God planned from the beginning, and which God's wisdom revealed to us through God's Spirit. Kenneth Bailey is a theologian. He said it this way. The cross was the eternal plan of God from all ages, but the mystery of the crucifixion of Jesus was so amazing that no one ever imagined it. Nobody thought this would be the way that God would work. That's the mystery in and of itself. Why would God choose to do it this way? What was he up to? So the cross is the mysterious plan that God revealed. But what I want to know is how does this help me to actually be more mature? How does this help me to actually grow? Great. It's simple. It's easy. Okay. What do I do now? Sounds like a really mature way to ask that question, right? What am I getting at here? I want to jump ahead a little bit and then we're going to come back and finish up chapter two. But let's look at chapter three, verse one. Read these verses with me. Brothers and sisters, I cannot address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? So solid food versus milk, mature versus immature, spiritual versus unspiritual. 
you know, it almost makes you want to ask the question, does Paul even think that the Corinthians are Christians? Which the answer to that is yes. This is not a litmus test for figuring out who's a Christian versus who is not a Christian, who's in versus who's out. As Gordon Fee, who's a theologian, said, Paul's whole concern is to get them to change. Remaining worldly is not one of the options. Christians who are mature are living by the Spirit, which means that they are led by the Spirit. Immature Christians may have been touched by the Spirit. They may have been poked by the Spirit, but they are living decidedly by their own decisions and wisdom, by their own desires, and it shows in their actions and in their words. What was Paul's frustration with the, with the Corinthians here in chapter 3? Was that they were fighting with each other and that they were jealous of each other. You know, this word jealousy, it shows up in a very prominent spot in the book of 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, where it says, love is not jealous or boastful or proud. Maybe you've heard that one before. So from Paul, how do you know if you as a Christian are actually mature? Here's what he's saying. Are you loving others well? Even people that you disagree with, even people that you might be tempted to be a little bit jealous of. Is love your dominant reaction to others? That's what maturity looks like. But here's the thing. We still struggle with this, right? I'm throwing the Corinthians under the bus, but we're not that much better at it. We still struggle with this today. We argue about who's mature and who's immature. We still are trying to find the secret mystery uh, wisdom that's going to make us better than other people. We still have jealousy and fighting within the church. The Gnostics were the only ones struggling. The Corinthians weren't the only ones struggling. We ourselves are still tr struggling with this. And here's, here's one way that this plays out. You know, we as a church, Vineyard Church of Hopkinton, we are categorized or titled sometimes as a charismatic church. And what charismatic simply means is that we believe that the Holy Spirit still speaks and moves in our world today, right now maybe. He didn't stop when Paul and Peter stopped living. He continued on. And it's a tremendous blessing to be a part of a church who believes in that because it means that we give space for the Holy Spirit to move and to speak to us today. And he does amazing things. And it's a really awesome thing to be. But sometimes we let it get to our heads. Sometimes we're tempted to believe that verses like these where it talks about solid food versus milk and mature versus immature are implying that we as charismatics or Pentecostals or people who believe in the Holy Spirit are the ones who are mature. We are the ones who have the secret knowledge from the Holy Spirit. We have the solid food. We hear Jesus clearly. We're the ones who get the download from the Holy Spirit. We're the ones who get words about people and nations and presidents. But that way of thinking breaks Jesus's heart. That is the opposite of what we're being encouraged here. Because it implies that we are better than those weak Christians who haven't figured it all out. Those weak Christians who believe something different than what you and I believe. But Paul just said that the weak Christians are the ones who are jealous. The weak Christians are the ones who are fighting. The weak Christians are the ones who are calling other people immature. The ones who fail to love. 
So where does that leave us? Well, I want to get back to the basics for a moment. You'll see why I'm going here. So just, you know, go along with it. <laughs> here, what, what is a prophetic word? A prophetic word is something that the Holy Spirit or Jesus speaks to you or to me. That, that gives us insight into something or someone. And a true word for the Holy Spirit will always do these three things. Help you to know Jesus more. Revelation 19.10, worship only God for the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. It will always help you to love others more. 1 Corinthians 14.3, but one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. And it will always be based in biblical truth, which doesn't mean that, which means that it's not going to contradict the Bible or, or say something that Jesus wouldn't say. These are the guidelines that God works within. God set up these guidelines. He set up these boundaries. This is the way that he wants to work. And so he is always going to stay within those lines. So when you hear a prophetic word or a vision or a dream, you need to ask yourself, does this sound like Jesus? Does it fit within the Bible? And does it encourage me to love other people more? Now you might be sitting there and, and you've read the Bible. You've read the Old Testament and you're like, but Stephen, I have read prophetic words in the Old Testament that do not encourage me to love Jesus more. I've read prophetic words in the Old Testament that seem fairly violent, that seem to uh, tell me to do stuff to my enemies or that God's going to do stuff to my enemies. What do we do with those? Well, and that's a good question. Here's my answer to you. Sorry if it seems too simple, but we don't live in the Old Testament. We live in the time after Jesus, and that changes everything. Because on this side of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we have a whole bunch more that we know, that we understand about God and about God's plan. And we need to recognize that the rules have changed because of Jesus. The lens through which we view, read, and understand the Bible has to be Jesus. And here's where I'm getting that. When Jesus was on the road to Emmaus with a couple of friends in Luke chapter 24, they were walking along and they didn't recognize Jesus because it was after he was resurrected and he must have looked a little different or something about it. So they weren't sure that it was Jesus. But he says in verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus understood and he explained all of the Old Testament through the lens of his life and death and resurrection. He is our focal point. He illuminates. He helps us to understand. He corrects. So if my argument, if my prophetic word, if my interpretation of something requires me to take something from the Bible and completely separate it out from Jesus and what Jesus says, then I'm doing something wrong. I'm missing the boat at that point. I'm getting basic here for a reason because I think we need reminded of this, friends, because honestly, I'm a little nervous about what I see sometimes in the church during these times. Because I think social media has convoluted how we test things, how we approach following Jesus. And I think in some ways we've gotten way too gullible 
We think just because our friend posts a video or a quote or something, uh, some blog post, that it makes it actually reputable, that it makes it actually biblical, that it makes it actually correct. But friends, we're not infallible. I'm not infallible. You're not infallible. Your friend on Facebook is certainly not infallible. Who is infallible? Jesus. He is always telling the truth. He is always saying the right thing. Just because somebody on Facebook shared something or Twitter or Instagram or just because you heard it on Christian TV does not mean that it is always from Jesus. And I'm going down this path because as a pastor, I just want to encourage you to be wise with this. Be wise with what you believe. Be wise with what you take in. Be wise with what you share with others. Because friends, there's been some prophetic words or visions or dreams that I've seen that people have shared. Not anybody in our church, don't worry. Just other people who, who, who need correcting. <laughs> uh, but that other people who have shared from well-known Christian leaders that honestly, I don't think that they're from Jesus. And that's a hard thing to say, but I don't think that they pass the test. These prophetic words and dreams and visions, they encourage us to do things that I don't think Jesus encourages us to do. Things like hate somebody who believes something different than you. Things like arm yourself so that you can go to war against somebody who believes something different than you. Things like speaking uh, vile uh, untruths against people because they believe something different from you. They're filled with fear and militancy, and that's not how Jesus works. Jesus doesn't speak out of fear. Jesus doesn't speak out of a desire to, to bring his kingdom in a violent way to our world. He brings violence to our enemy, who is Satan in the spiritual realm. He doesn't bring violence to physical people. He tells us that in the Gospels. He tells us to do something different. Do you ever hear Jesus telling us to go to war with a brother or sister? their neighbor no he tells us to love our enemies as ourselves he tells us to have faith that god's going to take care of us and i don't think those types of words pass the test friends they don't encourage us to love jesus more they don't encourage us to uh, love our neighbors more and they don't fit within the bible when we're looking at it through the lens of jesus here are some truths for you jesus would never tell you to hurt somebody else he tells you to love them Jesus would never tell you to hate someone who has a different political belief system. He says in Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. Friends, as followers of Jesus, our lives cannot be driven by a fear that a certain political party or political system will fail because it's going to. I like history. I read about it all the time. And political systems fail. Political leaders fail. Political parties fail. But here's the truth. Isaiah 40 verse 8. The grass withers and fade, flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Political systems and uh, parties will fail, guaranteed. But in the face of that, Jesus remains 
king. And what does Jesus bring? He doesn't bring fear and hatred. He brings faith, hope, and love. Is that what's shining out of you when you're engaging with our world? It might sound childish. It may sound simplistic. You might be like, it's 2020, Stephen. Grow up. It's harder than that. But friends, the foolishness of Jesus and the cross is where it begins and ends. It's our only hope. Think of following Jesus like learning a new language. Kids are so much better at learning new languages than us, right? And I think there's a couple reasons. One is because their brains are still forming so they can learn stuff, blah, blah, blah. Here's the other reason. I think it's because they're not afraid of being a little foolish. When we learn a new language, we get so self-conscious about people watching us, about people uh, laughing at us when we say something wrong. When a kid learns a new language, they just are in all of it. They're loving it. They're having fun. They chuckle when they say it wrong. You know, friends, when we're following Jesus, we need to learn from kids. We need to be okay with being a fool. And we need to open ourselves to learning the simplicity of Jesus. I told you we were going to return to chapter 2. Here's what verse 10 says. These are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God freely has given us. This is what we speak in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit taught words. Who reveals it to us? The Holy Spirit. Why is it revealed? It's not about us becoming more spiritual or gaining some knowledge that puts us at a level higher than other people. It's so that we can understand what God has freely given to all of humanity. Why do we need to know God's plan, God's mystery, God's wisdom? So that we can share with others the truth of who Jesus is in the cross. We don't get to wallow in it, as one pastor says. We get it so that we can give it to others. So friends, if you want to be weak and worldly, here's what you can do. Fight against those whom Jesus loves. Live a life filled with jealousy and quarreling and fighting. Uh, hate those whom Jesus died for. And prophesy against those whom Jesus calls his own. But friends, if you want to be mature, and I know you do, then place all of your hope in the foolishness of Jesus in the cross. Because wisdom is found in the selfless Savior who gave up all for a people who didn't even understand what was happening. Maturity is found in, in believing in a king who gave up his kingdom so that you could know him, so that you could be in a relationship with him. Where do you place your confidence and faith in your ability to, to figure out some mystery, uh, to decode some secret mystery, in, in some political system being able to survive a little bit longer, or in the beauty of the cross? You are of Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, that is what we're told. You are one of Jesus' own, one of his favorites. You are his child. You are an heir to all that is our father's. He died for you and he lives for you. You are royalty. You may suffer. You may go through really hard, unbear almost unbearable things on earth. But the truth never wavers. It never stops that you are a child of the king. But being an heir comes with a burden, and it's a burden of maturity. So what does it look like to be spiritually mature? 
it looks foolish to the world. Democrats think that you're foolish. Republicans think that you're foolish. It doesn't fit well within the systems of our world because it means that you follow a savior who died, a savior who gave up everything. And friends, that kind of selflessness and love does not make sense in our world. People will not get it when you're basing it against the way that we view power, the way that we view control. It doesn't look the same. That kind of selflessness and love is only found in Jesus. But Jesus wants to reveal it to us through the Holy Spirit. He doesn't keep it hidden. So friends, this morning is love your dominant reaction. In 2020, let me, let me ask you this. It might hurt a little bit, but are you getting better at loving people around you? And specifically, are you getting better at loving people who you have a disagreement with? Who you view, who, who, who thinks something different from what you, you think? Are you getting better at loving people with different opinions? Because that's where it starts and it stops, friends. Maturity is found in that reality. I want to know nothing but Christ and him crucified. Is it foolish? Maybe. But it's the base. It's the goal. It's everything. Is it your everything? Here's what I want to do. If you've never said that you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, I want to pray with you right now. We're going to come back after a couple of worship songs and I'm going to pray for us to live mature lives that are centered on the love of Jesus. But really quick, if you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, this foolish king who gave up everything for you, then pray with me. Jesus, I thank you that your cross is the way that you lived and died and resurrected from the dead so that I could live with you. And I choose to give up my hope, my, my, my fear, uh, my, uh, anything that's been holding me that I've placed my foundation on on worldly systems, on political systems, on uh, hope for vaccines, on whatever it is, I choose instead to place my hope on Jesus. Jesus, come and reveal yourself to me like you said you would. In Jesus' name.